The Cornell Modern Indonesia project was designed to produce knowledge about a country that was, you have to remember the context of the 60s and 70s, um, a, key, uh, a key concern for U.S. policymakers in the context of the Cold War. Obviously big and important on world historical scales, but something about which most Americans knew very little. What we do is we try to support and nurture the best research that's out there. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Tom Papinski of Cornell's Southeast Asia program talks about his relationship to Indonesian language and culture, growing up in a Rust Belt town in the United States, and the ways in which the language you speak may or may not affect your view of the world. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Sam Lupowitz, the media manager at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Angelica Kramer is out today studying the migratory patterns of the monarch butterfly. So I will be your guide as we chat with Tom Papinski, the new director of Cornell's Southeast Asia program. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, I'm excited to talk about some language stuff. Wonderful. Well, let's get started then. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and your path with languages and learning languages. Uh, so uh, I'm a political scientist by profession, so I'm a member of the Department of Government. Um, I was actually, though, a linguistics major as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. So I've always had a kind of interest in uh, languages and, you know, uh, sort of nurtured through my interest in travel and other parts of the world and things like this. Uh, but I, I did major in linguistics thinking that what that would mean was I got to just learn a whole bunch of languages. And I quickly learned that actually what that means is I get to learn how to think very scientifically, mostly about English. Right, uh, right. So that's, my, <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's my path um, and my sort of my history of learning about, about the study of language. Um, but over the course of high school um, and college and graduate school, I think I've learned, I've taken... German and French in high school. I also did a little bit of an independent study in Russian. I have some limited experience with um, with Japanese. And then when I was in graduate school, I, uh, I decided that I was going to study Southeast Asian politics. And so during that time, I learned Indonesian, Bahasa Indonesia, uh, uh, and then a little bit of Vietnamese as well. Wonderful. As the new director of the Southeast Asia program here, what are some things that you're working on? So we are in the process of lining up a couple of interesting uh, funding applications. Um, in addition to our normal business of uh, teaching more Southeast Asian languages than any other university in North America or the Western Hemisphere, um, and also supporting uh, our various sorts of research initiatives having to do with everything ranging from the politics of democratic decline um, uh, to um, art, storytelling, and, uh, uh, and uh, the Javan rhinoceros. We have a whole bunch of interesting uh, thinking to do about um, the direction of the, of the Southeast Asia program for the, for the next five to 10 years. This comes as, uh, as the program applies for um, a, a renewal of its Title VI National Resource Center uh, mm -hmm. grant, which is awarded by the federal government, um, which um, uh, Southeast Asia program has has held this continuously since this competition was first launched. And so we're thinking about what is our, um, uh, as a program, we're thinking about 
how do we want to position ourselves for the next round of that funding? And we're also thinking about um, applying for other private uh, 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 grant support, foundation support that will allow us to expand our activities, um, to deepen our engagement with Southeast Asia as a region, but also I think in an exciting uh, new direction to start thinking more concretely about the relation, relationship between uh, Southeast Asian area studies and Asian American studies in the United States. So this is an area in which questions of language um, uh, as, as a vehicle for culture um, and the sort of immigrant refugee asylum experience become really interesting and urgent. And I think the Southeast Asia program is really well positioned to start those conversations now. Oh, absolutely. Terrific. Um, are, are, can you speak a little bit about some of the opportunities specifically for both students and faculty related to language? So, uh, as I mentioned before, we offer more Southeast Asian languages at Cornell than uh, any other university in the Western Hemisphere or perhaps the world. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not for sure about that last statement, but it's, if, it's, if we don't offer the most, we're very close. Uh-huh. Um, so the, the best way that students who are interested in languages can engage with the Southeast Asia program is by taking one of the six uh, modern Southeast Asian languages that we offer here at Cornell. So we offer Tagalog, Bahasa Indonesia, Vietnamese, Burmese, Thai, and, and Khmer, the language of Cambodia. Um, uh, we also make it avail- possible for students who want to learn Lao uh, to partner with another university to do this. Um, and we also have opportunities we would set you up gladly with um, uh, opportunities to learn other languages of the region. So, for example, sometimes we have students who are interested in learning Malay, which is related to Indonesian, but not the same, or Javanese, or one of the many other hundreds of languages spoken throughout the region. So that's something that which is really kind of at the core intellectual mission of the Southeast Asia program is supporting language learning. And for students who are interested in engaging with the program, that's a great place to start. These are languages that are taught at all levels. And so you may start like me without any knowledge of Indonesian at all. And you can, in the course of your time here at Cornell, uh, 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 advance from beginning to the advanced or directed reading level. And the same is true with the other languages that we have. Um, beyond that, of course, we have all of our other uh, teaching and research activities. We have a week- weekly uh, Southeast Asia brown bag lecture known as the Gaddy Lecture Series that happens on Thursdays uh, at 1215 in the Cannes Center, 640 Stewart Avenue. We also have um, various sorts of courses that are offered by the faculty, ranging from courses in my department of government uh, to uh, anthropology, Asian studies, and beyond. Um, and then keep your eye out, um, if you're interested in, in the region, for just our news feed from the Ainaudi Center, because we have announcements about events on campus. There's a couple of really exciting exhibits at the Johnson Museum right now that are Southeast Asia focused. Um, and that's the way to learn about the, the things that are more irregular that arise as the course of the semester that we'd like to share with you all. Very cool. So you spoke a little bit at the beginning about your background in linguistics and, and the other you know language opportunities you've pursued, but where did your initial interest in Southeast Asia and Indonesia come from? So my uh, story of the story of how I became interested in Southeast Asia is a little bit um, serendipitous and accidental. So I grew up in a suburb of a Rust Belt city. So outside of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, my town was not particularly international, uh, but um, I had a grandmother who used to like to look at the globe with me. And so I used to, we used to, she used to spin the globe and 
talk about the where she put her finger down and where we landed on. And I, something about that experience got me interested in travel in general. And then in particular, I was interested in what, for my rather provincial background, seemed like uh, places that were in between what I thought were great civilizations. So places that were, I viewed as peripheral or uh-huh. interstitial. So I was always much more interested in, say, Central Asia than I was in either Russia or China. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in Turkey than I was in Europe or the Middle East, Ethiopia more than sub- other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East. And equivalently, Southeast Asia looked like a place that, again, I, I realize now with the benefit of hindsight and having taken courses that these places are not, they're not peripheries. They're not just in between other things. Sure. But Southeast Asia, from my sort of my background as a as a as a kid from Harrisburg, seemed like a place that was uh, uniquely um, uh, at the crossroads of various different world cultures that we learned about. And we it also I, I think it's not accidental to realize that I grew up in the 80s and the Vietnam War just happened and nobody ever talked about it. So this was something that I just it was sort of circulating. But, you know, when I got to college, I I could have chosen any world region, I think, to to focus on. And the, the, the fact of the matter is I took a course in Southeast Asian anthropology and the instructor, Pat Simons, was the best instructor that I had. And so she turned me on to the region. And from there, it was clear that that's the region of the world that I was going to study. So from there, I, I, I volunteered at a Lao refugee community in Smithfield, Rhode Island uh, when I was in college. And so I got uh, turned on to um, mainland Southeast Asian affairs and the refugee experience from there. And when I got to graduate school, I decided to do political science rather than linguistics. And the question that I had to confront was, if I was going to study Southeast Asia, where was I going to start? Um, and I thought very practically, I said, well, if I learn Indonesian, then that probably allows me to also study Malaysia. And so I started taking Indonesian in graduate school with the with this vague idea that it would be helpful for doing a comparative dissertation on Southeast Asia, which it proved quite useful to do. Uh-huh. Um, but there was no other motivation than like a couple people said a couple things to me during college that turned me on to a part of the world. And then I thought to myself, if I don't have any particular country connection besides Laos and, you know, opportunities for studying Laos are very few, what, what should I study? And the answer was Indonesia. And the, the key to doing any of that was learning Indonesian, which I could do in graduate school. Fascinating. Thank you. Among many other things, you also serve as associate director of the Cornell Modern Indonesia Project. Uh, what is that project all about? So the Cornell Modern Indonesia Project was started decades ago by a couple of Cornell Indonesia scholars uh, who preceded me. Um, I believe it was started by George Cahan and Ben Anderson, although I'm not exactly sure which individual was responsible for this. But it also involved um, such uh, foundational scholars of Indonesian politics and society like Audrey Cahan, um, Ruth McVeigh, and others. And the Cornell Modern Indonesia Project was designed to produce knowledge about a country that was you have to remember the context of the 60s and 70s, um, a, key, uh, a key concern for U.S. policymakers in the context of the Cold War, obviously big and important on world historical scales, but something about which most Americans knew very little. And so the Cornell Modern Indonesia Project was a, was a, it, it, the project is, is purely what we would say virtual these days. It exists 
primarily in the minds of the people who are engaged with it. Mm. We are, we are, what we do is we try to support and nurture the best research that's out there on Indonesian politics, uh, society, history, culture, and so on and so forth. One of the most important things that the Cornell Modern Indonesia Project does is it supports the publication of a journal called Indonesia, which is um, a, a comprehensive highly respected peer-reviewed journal, which is about Indonesian affairs, edited here at Cornell. Um, the Cornell Mountain Indonesia Project has also been engaged in a, it's about a decade-long process right now of compiling state-of-the-field uh, edited volumes that are designed to tell us what is the, you know, the current state of knowledge or, you know, what are conceptual, theoretical, practical, empirical problems that need to be solved in the study of Indonesia from various disciplinary perspectives. Um, And so, as you can see, it's really focused on, like, supporting knowledge, generating knowledge, and curating it so that it can be used by all. Very cool. Uh, And you have a fascinating forthcoming publication titled On Warfian Socioeconomics. Uh, Do tell us a little bit more about that piece. So this is kind of my uh, labor of love. It is the political scientist returning to linguistics finally to, to, to think about linguistics once, once again. So I'll give you a brief overview of what the paper is responding to, and then I'll tell you just briefly about the paper itself. So the, the, the paper is responding to a new body of research in the social sciences that tries to argue that linguistic structures, so like things like grammar, have causal effects on beliefs and behaviors. Ooh. So this is the old, you, you, you may have encountered the sort of pure wharf hypothesis once or twice in your, in your day, or sometimes called linguistic relativity. And this is an old argument that dates back to, I think, Willem von Humboldt, if not before, that, that argues that like our language really shapes our thought. Not that it, uh, not that it, supplies the words that we use, but it actually affects our processes of cognition. Yeah. Uh, Warfian socioeconomics is not done by linguists. It's done by non-linguists who want to, who take this inspiration and they push it further. So um, the most famous example of this, you may have heard about on NPR about a decade ago. Um, it is an, a paper in the most highly respected economics journal, the American Economic Review, which argues that speakers of languages that have obligatory grammatical marking of the future tense are actually more likely to save more. Ah. So they have higher levels of savings. And so the idea here is that if your language obliges you to think about the future grammatically, you, uh, you, you are more future oriented in everyday tasks like uh, uh, anticipatory saving for, uh, for retirement or windfalls or things like this. Now, as a linguistics major, I was taught that there is not a lot of evidence that the linguistic relativity thesis holds for big, for big claims like that. Mm-hmm. Certainly, your language supplies the words we use and some of the categories we use to, to divvy up the world. And so if you learn Russian, for example, you will know that you need two different words for what we call blue in English. You need sini for uh, dark blue and boy for light blue. I believe I got those two, those two right. But linguistics relativity, as, as used by the, the social scientists, doesn't just say, in Russian, you got to know two words to be linguistically competent. It says things like, if you have this particular grammatical marking of the future tense, you're, you actually 
go about your economic life differently. And I think that that's, that the evidence doesn't support that. So what I do in this paper is I summarize that literature. So the types of arguments that people are making, another very prominent one is that languages that have gender, grammatical gender for nouns are, uh, create speakers who are more sexist mm. or more aware of gender distinctions, uh-huh. um, which I, I find an implausible claim. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think that there are plenty of determinants of sexism, but that the having la la in French versus the in English is probably not one of them. But that, that, um, uh, that uh, argument is out there. So I review that literature, all the types of claims that are made, and then I, I adopt a couple of statistical tests that are designed to show that the, the research designs that these social scientists are using are way too likely to erroneously find these sorts of correlations using the types of data and statistical procedures that they use. Mm. So I do this. It's a little bit cheeky in the sense that I, I, I take 125 different word, uh, uh, grammatical features that exist, things from like, does your language have uh, a, a second person inclusive versus exclusive? So in Indonesian, the word for you and me uh, varies depending on, on whether or not it focuses on you and me, but not this other person, or me and this other person, but not you. So in English, those are both we. In English, you have kita versus kami. One says uh, you and me, but not, or me and the other person, but not you. And the other is you and me and the other person. So things like that, all sorts of variables. And then I take all sorts of different behaviors like religious attendance, self-professed desire to fight for your country in a war, all sorts of things. And I, I show that the procedures that these scholars use to support their claims about, say, future-oriented behavior and grammatical marking, marking the future tense also predict all sorts of outlandish things as well. So if you use that procedure, you will also find evidence, for example, that languages that have the word... Uh, a, a word for tea that is derived from the Hokkien te versus the Mandarin cha are more likely to, to want to fight for their country. So we suspect that that's probably not an example of language shaping thought, mm-hmm. but the procedures that existing scholarship uses also generate findings of that form. So it's designed to show that the procedures are, or the, the findings are very implausible because there's way too many such correlations out there that almost certainly do not have linguistic or sociological meaning. So then the last thing I do, so the paper raises this issue for linguists, introduces them to this body of research, shows why the research I think is, uh, is erroneous, uh, much, uh, it uses methods that are just too likely to find implausible correlations in the data. And then I show how some simple tools that social scientists have also developed can enable people who want to ask those sorts of questions to ask them in ways that are much more conservative to rule out the possibility of finding these, what I think are almost certainly false positives in the data. Uh, I think that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, It probably says something about my continued working in academia that I think that sounds like fun, but (laughs) thank you for, for sharing that with us and for explaining it. I I think it's fascinating. Um, So for our listeners, where can we go to find out more about the Southeast Asia program at Cornell? Well, the best thing to do, like the, the, the single repository for current events and everything like this, is the Southeast Asia program website. And so you can find this by Googling Cornell Southeast Asia program. 
it'll get you right there. Um, you can also go to the iNaudi Center's website. So I think that's iNaudi.cornell.edu and just have a couple clicks and you'll get to the Southeast Asia program. There you can introduce, you can see links to the courses that are offered, the faculty that are there, the events that we have on the calendar, uh, the types of activities that we're engaged in, and anything having to do with that. So that's that's the easiest way to get involved. You can also contact me directly, um, papinski at cornell.edu, and I can direct you to, uh, I can answer any questions that you might have. Uh, but then also the, the Southeast Asia Program office staff, if you have questions more about like events and participation and things like this, uh, you should feel free to just contact any of the office staff. Their contact information is also on the website. Excellent. You can also, I should, I should, I'm obliged to also say, follow us on Twitter. Of course. Seep Cornell at Seep Cornell or on Facebook at the Cornell Southeast Asia program, Facebook page. Great. Well, Tom, before we sign off, uh, we'd like to ask you to share your favorite word in a language you speak, love, or are learning. So let's hear that favorite word. I, you know, I thought really hard about this and I had to choose one. And it's very hard for me to choose one. So instead of choosing favorite words, I'm going to give you my least favorite word. Oh, okay. This is a, a variation we haven't had yet on the podcast. So, I'm, I'm so a little bit of background just briefly is that as a kid, I struggled with a stutter. Mm. So that stutter almost never shows up when I'm speaking English anymore. But when I'm speaking other languages, that's when I see it. Mm. It returns. And there is a word that I used to always have to say in Indonesia that always made me stutter. And it is the word for to sign something or specifically the word that I'm going to, I'm going to say for you, I'm going to try to say for you. We'll see if I get through it is the word that means the signing of. So like this would be the word that you would use to describe the signing of the declaration of independence. And that I had to sign forms, uh, checks, things like this. And this word always tripped up. The word is panandatanganan. Panandatanganan. And you can see why that would be tricky for somebody with a uh, stutter because it's all the same vowel, mostly. It's the ah sound. And then almost everything else, it moves from a bilabial stop, then all the different types of alveolar stops and continuance, and then there's a nasal as well. So you, it like moves all over your mouth in ways that just always trip me up. So I'll say it one more time. Pananda tanganan. With the word for the signing of. Tanda well, I... means literally sign. Tangan means hand. So tanda tangan means signing by hand. And then the circumfix pe or pung an uh, wrapped around that turns sign hand into uh, this abstract uh, the signing of. Pananda tanganan. Well, I thank you. I uh, appreciate you digging through that trauma and uh, and sharing that with us. So, uh, Tom, this has been great. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. Next week, we will speak with Munther Yunus, director of Cornell's Arabic program. Until then, off to hun. How is that in Gallica? The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. 
Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.